our pets don't have advanced directives like people do to say what their preferences or opinion on their care should be. So the person is left to make those decisions for them. Terminal disease and euthanasia are things that a lot of pet owners have to deal with. They're not easy topics. There are now practices set up who solely help with end-of-life matters. In this episode of the VET podcast, we catch up with a veterinarian who runs one of these. My name is um, Melissa Trupia. I'm a veterinarian in Illinois in the U.S. um, And I'm in Naperville, which is just outside of Chicago. And I have a house call practice that focuses just on hospice and palliative care and end-of-life services. You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr. Brian Greger from New Zealand. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. Most pet owners at some stage are going to get a terminal diagnosis for their pet. What needs to be considered when deciding what is the best thing to do for this animal? Yeah, and I, that's a great question because it really is one of the tenets, I think, of hospice and palliative care because our pets don't have advanced directives like people do to say what their preferences or opinion on their care should be. So the person is left to make those decisions for them. And that can obviously be very overwhelming. And I think that's where we can come in as the hospice or palliative care uh, veterinarian to help guide them. It is a little bit different than in general practice, or at least I have shifted the way I do things um, differently than I once did, um, where we're really considering their circumstances, which includes, you know, their advantages and their limitations when it comes to caring for a pet with um, a terminal or just a poor diagnosis. We have to consider other circumstances uh, when it comes to these decisions. That could be, you know, what does the rest of this caretaker's life look like? Do they have a highly stressful job that requires long hours? Do they have kids? Um, are they already taking care of another pet with high needs? Maybe they're already taking care of an aging parent. Do they have a good support system in place with friends and family, pet sitters, things along those lines where they might be able to um, have other people take a share in the burden of care that, you know, a pet with a bad or terminal diagnosis might present with. And that's not to say that having or not having any of those things in place would be a deterrent to formulating a care plan for a dog who's going to need a lot of care. But I think having these in-depth discussions helps the family to consider the reality of the situation and how caring for a sick pet might alter their life, it might alter their family dynamics, and really how they feel about that. And with that discussion too, you know, considering their own quality of life, the focus for me always goes obviously on the pet, but also including the big picture, um, everybody else that's going to be involved with the pet's care as well. I guess we have to balance the other side of this decision-making process as well. Yes, all very fine, what is best for the family, Without a doubt, we have to look at what's best for the animal as well. Right. So then you sort of have to, you know, think for the pet. And that, I think, you know, we have to look at the pet's behavior and their personality and kind of historically how they've handled certain situations. So, you know, some pets were going in the car, there's no problem. 
they love their vet's office. They're not showing any outward, you know, signs of anxiety with being handled or touched or any of those things. And, you know, of course, you know, for example, frequent trips to uh, see the oncologist seems like it would be in their best interest because the pet feels okay about it. We may be able to extend not only the quality of life, but the quantity of life in that situation too. And the pet owner can feel good about that decision as well, seeing that their pet's overall quality of life is going okay. Other pets, you know, that might be a totally different situation where maybe they hate the car ride, they can't handle it, they're shaking and anxious, or they're just very fearful or stressed out in the vet clinic, you know, despite all the things we do to try to make it fear-free experience. And then you kind of get into that, like, you know, are we potentially treating this pet quote unquote against their will when they clearly are showing, you know, visible outward signs that they're distressed by this. You know, I think that's still going to be very individual where some pet parents are going to say, we can get through this appointment because the rest of the time at home is okay. Whereas other, you know, pet caretakers, that's going to be really distressing for them to see that their pet um, is not handling these treatments or therapies well, it's causing distress. And then the problem that I see is that the human-animal bond in those situations is gets challenged. I don't ever want a caretaker to feel that because the textbook says we need to do this treatment to help your pet, that you have to do it. Because that's simply not the case, especially when it comes to end-of-life situations. Even in the home setting, like let's get rid of the vet clinic trip visit, you know, altogether. Even in those situations, we're constantly having to see what works and what doesn't work for each pet to have the best balance that we can, that the caretaker feels comfort and is happy with what's happening to their pet and how their pet is handling it. And that the pet is also, you know, comfortable during all of that as well. How can you actually tell how much pain or discomfort your pet is in? Yes, um, that is the number one question that I get from pet parents because nobody wants to see their pet in pain. But unfortunately, it is hard to tell when a pet is in discomfort or pain unless you've been trained to notice uh, the signs and the symptoms. And even us as vets sometimes, I mean, gosh, sometimes it is tricky to tell just how much pain uh, an individual pet might be in. But at home visits, I will always start by explaining the types of pain and um, what we need to do in order to kind of pick it apart a little bit. So, you know, first and foremost, I'll put it in terms of them themselves as the human being. You know the difference between acute pain, you know, you know when you cut your finger or fall down outside um, on your rollerblades and break your bone that's kind of more of an excruciating pain. You're going to have a, an episode where you're going to vocalize or scream or say words to express that you're in that pain. Whereas chronic pain is the more festering kind. So, you know, I ask them, think back to when you were walking with a limp or you were having to shift your weight over because you're, you know, you were walking oddly. Why were you walking like that? And then they go, oh yeah, my, it was because my knee is bothering me or, oh, I have, you know, chronic low back pain that bothers me every day. And then I can talk further into that and say, well, when you had that pain, 
you weren't vocalizing about it or whining. Maybe you complained a little bit to your friends and colleagues. What you did about it was you changed your behavior. You didn't do some of the things that you would normally do that day. And you were walking funny in order to get your body into the most comfortable position. And that's what your pet's doing too. You know, your pet's not walking with a limp or walking abnormally because they just want to. There's a reason for it. And a lot of times they they go, oh yeah. And then we talk about the rest of their behavior too. So we have dogs, or I see this all the time, where yeah, they used to sleep upstairs with us, um, but you know, for the past four months, they've just slept downstairs. They've decided to stay in the living room. And we talk further about that. And you know, that's because they don't like going up the stairs because it's painful and they have decided most likely that it's not worth it anymore. So let's see where we can further pinpoint in where that pain or discomfort is and see what we might be able to do about it. And same thing for cats. They can be even trickier. But looking at their behaviors, you know, how active are they? Are they getting up and moving around as much as they once did? Jumping on the furniture. Um, Maybe we even have some urinary or litter box issues going on that we could potentially figure out is related to pain. Maybe they can't get up into the box anymore and they're peeing just outside of it. And you've been chasing down a urinary tract infection or something like that, when in fact it could be an arthritis or pain situation that we need to be looking at. Melissa, we've mentioned palliative care and hospice care. To me, hospice in the human context is the place where you go to get end-of-life treatment pain relief. Can you just explain a little bit how palliative care and hospice care fit into veterinary medicine? Yeah. So, and I think that that a lot of people, you know, you hear, here's, you know, my dog's name is Dorothy. Here's Dorothy's diagnosis. She has this terminal cancer. Maybe you should think about hospice care. And I think that word itself has a lot of negative connotation where it's just like, <gasps> you know, take a deep breath. And you think that hospice care is only, you know, it's all about dying, we're giving up, um, we're being sent home to do nothing. But really, hospice care and palliative care, and I'll kind of explain that in a sec, you know, what we're doing, we're, we're focusing on the living days and ensuring that the days of life left are as good as they can be. And I think the other thing too, before I kind of just give like the book definition, but as a veterinarian, doing only hospice and palliative care my style of communication has changed a bit too. When we get to that stage of life with, with these pets, you know, it changes a little bit from we're, not, we're no longer just kind of shot putting information at the family and treating the pet, you know, based on this is what the treatment is, that's what we need to do. It becomes more of a collaborative situation between myself and the primary caretaker and the whole, you know, the pet's family. And kind of back to the first thing we talked about, What's going on in their lives? What do we? What can we do to make this time more comfortable for everyone? And it becomes much more of a collaborative situation instead of just me as the vet saying, you know, your pet has this and we need to do these things. But, you know, just back to the definition. So palliative care, all that really means is, is you know, we're aiming to improve comfort and minimize suffering in any stage of disease, really. 
palliative care can start, you know, from the moment of a presumptive or a definitive diagnosis for pets. Um, And hospice care is just a subset of palliative care, meaning the pet has um, received or has a presumptive diagnosis, you know, that's unfortunately terminal. But, you know, I think this field goes a little bit beyond just regular veterinary medicine because we are trying to make sure that the human involved, that their social, emotional, and their spiritual needs, and those sorts of things are, are being met. And not specifically by me, but my role is to at least be checking in with them to see how they're doing and to, you know, encourage them to seek support. This is a hard time. Seek support on multiple levels. Make sure that they have, do you guys have family members or, you know, what am I seeing in their house? Maybe I think they would benefit from a grief support group or, you know, do they have a therapist or social worker that they're seeing? Or maybe that would be something that I could encourage them to look into. So I think it really, it's meant to provide support um, to the family in preparation for, for death, um, to provide comfort for living, um, and to kind of get ready and prepare for grief. A lot of people will start experiencing that grief well before the pet has passed. So to give everybody, including the family, a comfortable and meaningful experience. Are you doing your work as a standalone veterinarian or are you working in association with the primary caregiver? It's just me and my practice, but I do promote the fact that I I try to work collaboratively with the referring vets in the area um, or if people have found me on their own because they do not need a referral. um, But to say, hey, I'm going to let your primary vet know what's going on to keep them in the loop too, because I do feel like the collaborative approach can be really helpful for people. This is probably a how long is a bit of string question, Melissa, but how do you know when the time is right to say goodbye to your pet? Yeah, I think that really, that is a tough question. So again, very individual, depends on the situation. But what I will talk about with my pet families is we look at different types of quality of life scales and quality of life categories. Sometimes I try to hone in on the ones that are important to that person and that particular pet. Sometimes we'll even do what I call a quality of life consult first, and we really will go through, you know, are they comfortable? How's their appetite? Are they drinking water well enough? What's their social interaction like? And, you know, how... How are they getting around um, and interacting with the family on a day-to-day basis? And then we talk about, you know, good days versus bad days and that it's okay to have bad days. We want to see some good days and that we really don't want to see multiple bad days in a row. So obviously I'm kind of whittling this down to the bare bones and there's a lot of nuance and different um, considerations for each situation, but Really, when we're having more than a couple of bad days in a row, I encourage them to reach back out to me to talk about, you know, is are, are we needing to lean into the decision to say goodbye? So we're now at the point where the decision has been made that the best thing for the animal is to let it go. What plans can the owner, the veterinarian and you make prior to the actual euthanasia taking place? Yeah, so I think that any time that we can think about this ahead of time is going to be beneficial. I think that we as human beings 
have a hard time thinking about or facing the fact that we're going to lose our pets and our pets are going to die. It's a really difficult thing to think about. It's uncomfortable. But if we can talk about it a little bit ahead of time or plan a little bit in advance, it really can um, be helpful and beneficial. And of course, we can't always predict when a pet is going to need end-of-life services. But I do think a lot of times we've at least been given some idea. Maybe we have like an actual diagnosis from your primary vet that you know this, this, and this are going to happen. Or if you, you know, maybe you don't, but you can see the signs that your pet is having some decline. And instead of waiting until the last minute, reaching out to your primary vet or your area house call vet or hospice vet can can do you some good. And what we can do in those situations is talk while things are still calm. Talk about it before we've reached a stage where your pet's in distress, laying on the floor or they can't breathe. You know, it's not that we can't get there and help you in those situations too, but talking in advance can sometimes help us to, you know, not only make plans ahead of time, but we might be able to even prevent that emergency situation from happening in the first place by giving you as the caretaker, you know, expectations that, you know, we want, when you start to see this, we need to know about it sooner rather than later. But talking about it ahead of time, we can sort some things out. Do you want a home visit or do you prefer a clinic setting? Where do you want your pet to be in the house? Is there a favorite little cat bed or dog bed? Maybe you want to be outside under your dog's favorite tree or if you have land, you know, that's happened before. We'll be, you know, out somewhere by the barn where they, you know, that was their favorite spot. And we can think about it ahead of time and plan it out a little bit better. Even talking about aftercare options in the heat of the moment, someone's going on about, you know, do you want your pet's ashes back or not? And it's like, what? You know, my pet's really sick right now. And I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. So if you can think about it a little bit in advance, you can save yourself some stress and anxiety um, with making that decision. And you can have, you know, this is euthanasia and pet loss is never an easy experience, but we can make it a little bit less um, anxiety ridden and, you know, a little less terrible by thinking about some of these things ahead of time. And personally for me, I'd rather have you as the pet caretaker reach out, talk to my technician or talk to me. Let's make a connection. I want to know your story. I want to know a little bit about your pet so we can formulate um, the best plan for you ahead of time. And again, maybe hearing some more information will help me to make recommendations to enhance your pet's comfort at the end of life or prevent some stressful emergency situation from happening. Um, And I'll have people come back too and say that, you know, gosh, I didn't know that I needed that support. So even just getting support from a hospice vet or, or your primary vet, the support that maybe you didn't know you needed can be helpful as well. Melissa, I guess that for warned is forearmed. One of the things that I tried to do when I was in practice was to actually discuss what the euthanasia process involves prior to the fact that this is where we probably need to put I guess a little bit of a parental warning in here is that we may be talking about some things that aren't quite as pleasant but can you explain what the euthanasia process actually involves? Sure sure so 
and I think like in general, there's different protocols and ways that veterinarians go about the, you know, the proceed, the actual procedure of euthanasia, but this is what I do. So the first thing that I'm going to do is give your pet a sedation medication straight away. That's going to be a medication that's just a little little injection under the skin. Yes, it is a little poke, but most pets actually don't even realize that it's happening, especially if they're still able to have a little yummy snack or something while I give that to them. And what that does is that's a sedation that helps them to fall asleep. It's actually an anesthetic. So they're going to basically go under anesthesia slowly over about a 10-minute period or so where they're going to be completely comfortable and eventually not recognizing our touch, not in any pain or any distress uh, from that point on. Then the next thing that I do would be to actually give them the medication that allows them to pass. And you know, what that is itself, I don't, I think it can be variable from different countries, but it is just an, usually an older form of anesthesia itself. And I actually do give that in different ways. So for, if we have veterinarians listening, I was taught in school, you know, we're going to do this IV, we're going to put in a catheter. And I don't always necessarily do that anymore. If I'm going to do IV, I'll use a butterfly catheter, which is just a little needle to give an IV injection that way. And it's a lot less, at least for me personally, fussing around that the family member um, has to witness. For little pets, small pets, um, because again, remember, we've already given our sedation. The pet is completely under anesthesia at this point. There's other methods to give that medication to, whether it's into an organ or even just into the abdomen itself. And so again, it depends on the situation. So if I've got a pet parent who's has their little kitty snuggled up right into their chest, they're kind of in that upside down position like a, an infant, I don't want to move them. I don't want to change that situation because I, in my opinion, I feel that that's important for that caretaker to not be moved. So... There are ways that I can give the medication that doesn't involve a vein, that I can go um, intrarenal, for example, and give that medication still very humanely, very peacefully. Kitty doesn't feel anything, and the pet mom can, doesn't have to move at all, and we still have a very gentle and peaceful passing. Do you think there are advantages of actually doing the procedure at home? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I might be a little bit biased because my practice is house call only. But I will say since starting that, since being doing house calls, definitely some advantages to that. So first of all, I think just the comfort level of everyone that's involved. So we're in your own setting, in your own home, your pets in their home. I've had people say, you know, last time I did this, it was so hard to get into the car and make that drive. Um, so I've taken that away. You know, they don't, have, it's not them taking their pet somewhere. I'm coming to them. And then, you know, just the piece of the situation where, again, we're on their own territory. There are no appointments in the neighboring exam room. I get to focus on just them, which is something I appreciate too. I'm not being called um, into the treatment room or called into the next room. I can just be with that family. 
And I think that means a lot too. And the, you know, the family has more space to grieve and to process things, I think, a little bit better when they're in their own environment as well, um, just because of the comfort level that it provides to them. Regular listeners may recall an interview that we ran a few months ago now where we were looking at the effect that COVID virus was having on the operation of veterinary practices. We discussed matters with veterinarians Charlotte from the UK, Alex from here in New Zealand and Scott from Canada and one of the things that they all commented on was the difficulties and the effect it was having on the procedure of euthanasia. What kind of effect is this having on you, Melissa, and how are you getting around any difficulties that it is causing? Uh, Yeah, so definitely have changed some things. At first, I feel like I wasn't sure what was going to happen, and I actually didn't do any house calls in March through April of 2020. And then the more we learned about COVID, I began to do them again with a lot of precautions. So, um, of course, masks are mandatory for me. Everybody present has to wear one. Um, There's no exceptions to that. I see less appointments than I did pre-COVID for a few different reasons. Um, One, you know, we do have to clean everything and make sure those protocols are in place, but Also, just like personal life, you know, the kids have never gone back to school for even one day since March of last year. And my husband owns his own business, too. So in general, like business wise, because of that, we're seeing less appointments. But I would say that we have come up with some really good protocols. And I would continue those protocols even when we're sort of done with the pandemic. So what I'm doing now, you know, like I said, we all have masks on. And earlier, I explained the sedation process. So we're doing a lot of the communication ahead of time, um, either from myself or my technician explaining the whole process one time through before we even get there. Um, So some expectations are set. Then when I arrive, we have asked pet caretakers to meet us in the driveway or outside. um, And we'll talk about it one more time there too. And then we'll head inside and I'll give their pet the sedation medication. They've already been told what to expect as their pet gets drowsy from that. And I actually step back outside and just go back to my car for that 10 minutes. I initially started doing that in order to limit my total time in the appointment in their home but I have had a lot of positive feedback from the, the families themselves that just said, oh, thanks for doing that. Um, we really appreciated you know, that space to grieve and a little bit of privacy during that time. That was nice. So it's actually something that even when we're back to not wearing masks that I probably will continue to do. And then you know, after the appointment is same thing. Maybe I once would have sat there for a longer time and talked. Maybe that will come back again someday. But again, I'm after, you know, after the appointment, I'm going back out to my van and giving them whatever time they indicated, you know, they want to spend with their pet five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or come back in right away. You know, a lot of pet families just want me to come back in with the stretcher to go ahead and move their pet out to the the car. I think in some ways COVID has made that house call visit a little bit better, or at least set some things in place that I think I'll be able to make the experience a little bit better, you know, post COVID. The other um, 
I think really cool thing that COVID has done for my practice is telehealth. I have been able to talk to people on Zoom or whatever video situation we want to talk through ahead of time as well. And I've had a lot of families take us up on that kind of pre-euthanasia visit, or maybe we even do it as a before our hospice appointment um, visit. We will be able to talk on Zoom, go through the history, go through all of their um, you know, their personal situation and t- sort through all those things ahead of time face-to-face without masks and not on the phone. We're actually looking at each other because I think there's a lot of uh, nonverbal communication that you miss when it's just a phone call um, or even if I was there talking through a mask, you're not really seeing some of the things that they might be thinking with their face. So that's something too that post-COVID you know, even if we don't have to wear masks down the road, I might continue to offer because it's a convenient way to have those conversations ahead of time before the visit. So this really looks like it's reinforcing the fact that the COVID virus is changing the way that a lot of businesses and a lot of people are actually doing things. In these days of telemedicine and Zoom, I'm guessing that there's no reason why you are geographically limited to supplying your services to people in your local area. There is nothing stopping you from supplying them to the whole of the United States or, for that matter, the whole of the world. If that's the case, Melissa, how do people get in contact with you? Sure. So um, right now, uh, most of my consults are local But through the telehealth um, platform, you know, you could contact us from wherever you are. Just knowing that without an actual in-person relationship, I wouldn't be able to necessarily prescribe anything um, or be your primary vet. But we can still work through a lot of things regarding your pet's quality of life. Um, And what I do is I write a full report and then send it to your primary vet so they can see some of those things as well. Um, because we know in these COVID times too, especially, not that your vet doesn't want to help you, but I know that a lot of places are very, very busy and it is hard to have these in-depth communications not face-to-face. So if I can help anybody work through that quality of life discussion and send it on to your primary vet, you know, that's great. Um, or maybe even you didn't realize your primary vet could, could do certain diagnostics or therapies, um, and we can get you set up there to have those things um, taken care of would be great too. Um, but any questions or anything like that, you can contact us. Um, our website is faithfulfriendshomevet.com. My email address is on there, um, as well as a phone number um, that you can text or call. Um, 630-923-7171 here in the States. Melissa, I'll also pop a link to your website on our VET Podcast website, which, if people can remember, is vetpodcast.weebly.com. While you're there, have a look at our catalogue of old podcasts as well. Melissa, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search at Vet Podcast and like us while you are there. 
subscribe to us on your usual podcast player. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us on your player and share us with your friends. Our website is vetpodcast.weebly.com. Weebly is W-E-E-B-L-Y. Or email vetpodcast at gmail.com.